my heart is to show that there can be beauty and inspiration even in the midst of, of dark times and, and hard things happening. That is where I think God especially shines. We've had some amazing guests here on the aisle from a lot of amazing places. But today, all that changes. No, wait, that's not what I meant to say. Today, we have up to the ante both with the guests and the exotic locale because today, my misfit friends, we're taking you all the way to beautiful Elmira, New York. Oh, yes. And our guest is none other than award-winning author, you heard me, and my very own flesh and blood, Kathleen L. Maher. But don't let that flesh and blood part fool you. She actually has talent, unlike yours truly. So now that I've let it out of the bag that there's no deniability, no deniability now, um, I'm thrilled to welcome my younger sister, Kathleen, who I like to call Kathy. Is that okay if I call you Kathy? Yes, please do. It okay. sounds so stuffy. Yeah, because I've been doing Kathleen, that. Yeah. But it, it looked good on the book cover anyway. It really did. It, 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 <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. Thank it was a classy touch. That, that effusive intro. And um, I am delighted to be here on the aisle because I am a bona fide misfit. Well, you know, it's as the as the tree goes, so goes the apples. Because we did mention that I am your older sister, but um, you are a misfit, and in the most <laughs> wonderful way, um, you are a misfit in that you are not you are not a conformist, you are not a lemming, you're not swimming with the current. So those are all the values that we uphold here: owning our awkward, loving our fellow misfits, and looking for beauty and truth everywhere, and all of the above. I know that you do because I've been watching you for a while, and those seem to be a lot of your core values as well. Well, I learned from the best. What can I say? You know, if the best is the freak show that you're talking to, then uh, I will I will wear that title with honor. But we are really, really glad to have you here today. And uh, I know you've listened to a few of my podcasts along with the handful of other people out there. So I know you're familiar with the little tradition that we have here because we're here to really, we haven't even mentioned, we're here to talk about your book. That's the reason that we're here. The book is called The Abolitionist Daughter. But before we do... And, oh, we will. Um, we have that little tradition that I think you're familiar with where I ask my guests to engage with me in a stupid game. So, Yay, stupid game. So you know she's agreed. She already knew it was coming. Uh, but she doesn't know the questions. Let's I have not primed her or prepped her with the questions, folks. That's not the way we run this operation here. So today's stupid game mm-hmm. is all about our mutual hometown of Elmira, New York. So are you ready to play my stupid game with me? Oh, I am. I am psyched. I'm pumped. Let's she, do it. She's psyched. She's pumped. You heard her. Okay. So we're going to test your knowledge of your hometown. Some of these things I didn't know, but I looked them up in the Star Gazette, which you know is the official paper of Elmira, New York. So um, we know they are indisputable facts, and we're going to see how well-versed you are with your own hometown. So the first one has to do with the uh, the Civil War prison camp, which is a featured location in your novel. So here's your first question. This is true or false. One day after the first 400 Confederates arrived from Maryland, two prisoners scaled the Elmira prison camp's 12-foot stockade wall and escaped. True or false? My gut says false because the only successful escape attempt that I know of was with Sergeant Benson and his crew. I think there were nine, and that happened in October. 
So I'm going to say false. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm going to trust your judgment because A, you know what you're talking about. And B, the Star Gazette, which was my source, and we know we can't question the Star Gazette, but not even they had the full story. They only said they escaped. They did not say that they successfully escaped. So I'm going to believe you because you know what you're talking about. So very good. One point for you. All right. Moving right along. Okay, this one, this is veering away from uh, Civil War history, but this is a little known fact. I did not know this, but I'm going to put it as true or false and see, see how you do. Goulden's mustard originated from a famous Elmiran, Robert Goulden, who also moonlighted as a Vegas lounge singer. Is that true or false? <laughs> I have never heard this, but not to say that it couldn't be true, but... I'm going to say false. You're, yeah, you're absolutely right. It actually is false. I tried to trick you. Couldn't do it. You're too smart for me. Um, at, but actually, here's here's the real fact. It was, I just changed a name. Um, it wasn't Robert Goulden, and it wasn't Goulden's mustard, but the first mass-produced mustard was created by Elmira coffee, tea, and spice merchant Robert Timothy French of French's mustard. So he was an oh Elmira. Who knew? Wow. I no, didn't. I, I never even knew that trivia. That's cool. Okay, so now we're on to the subject of famous Elmirans. So speaking of famous Elmirans, we're not true or false in you. We're not even going to fill in the blank here because you should know. Name three other famous Elmirans. You're so smart. <laughs> well, I'm dying to bring up Brian Williams, but I think they've actually removed him from our billboard. Oh, he was on the billboard, this yes. controversial. <laughs> Uh, he was there. But, uh, yes, Brian Williams was there. I was there. I was a young man, and he was there. <laughs> he was bonafide. He was there. And uh, Eileen Collins, first female commander of a space shuttle. And um, I'll say Hal Roach. He's an easy one. Um, producer, director, I forget which, uh, maybe both of the Little Rascals, our gang, and the Three Stooges, all Elmirans. All Elmirans. Who knew that Elmira was connected to such greatness? We knew. You knew. Now the world knows. <laughs> okay, you're doing very well on this quiz. So I'm going to give you one more, um, and we're back to the Civil War. Uh, this has to do with the Underground Railroad, which is also a theme, the abolitionist daughter. How about this one? True or false? Over 800 people were safely ushered to freedom from um, via Elmira's stop on the Underground Railroad. That is absolutely true. And what's great about this history is so few people know it. Everyone knows Harriet Tubman, uh, the Moses, they called her Moses. Uh, of the Underground Railroad, uh, but very few people know John W. Jones. I like to call him the, the male Harriet Tubman because he did indeed, he was an escaped slave, and he used our railroad connections, literal railroad, to ferry uh, escaped slaves up to Canada. So very cool history. So yes, and I knew you would know the answer to that, but it segues beautifully into our next segment because, by the way, you've done extremely well in this game, and I'll tell you the exact same thing I tell every other guest. As soon as we get uh, an Isle of Misfit t-shirt, one's coming to your door, I know how to find you. So uh, congratulations, beautifully done. So, okay, so you've written this book. I know the story. Um, I know not just the story of the book, but I know the story behind the book, and it's so compelling. That's really, aside from the fact that you're my sister, that's really why I want you here. I want I want to hear some of some of the themes about the book, but I also I, I think the story behind this book is just as compelling because I think it's going to encourage a lot of people. So um, I'm going to start there. So you've written a book called The Abolitionist Daughter. Can you give us a brief mm -hmm. synopsis without giving, you know, yeah. without any so, spoiler alerts? Because we want people to read it. Absolutely. Um, 
So it is a Christian historical romance, which basically means it's historical in that it, it, it charts actual events that happened. It's fiction because we create characters within the time frame and setting. And it's romance because it's about a guy meets a girl, falls in love. And um, in this story, we have twin brothers. And uh, the Civil War is called the War Between Brothers because literally families were divided. So we have twin brothers who end up fighting on opposite sides of the war. And one of them has fallen in love with a northern girl from Maryland, right outside of D.C., and she's the daughter of a Washington politician who, he's a fictional character, but he works for, in, in my story, he works for New York State Senator Seward, which ends up being Lincoln's uh, Secretary of State. So he's very well connected. And, right. this and that part is, is not well fiction, right? Seward is, is exactly. not a fictional character. Real guy, yes. The guy that purchased Alaska, Seward's folly, same guy. So... He has ties, of course, to New York State, being a New York State senator, and uh, that's what ultimately segues the plot up north into Elmira. So we, we, we will be covering, in, in the story, it does the um, climax of the story occurs in Elmira. So that's just a teaser. It isn't much to go by, but it's <laughs> oh, <laughs> it no. what it is. I think you've laid out a lot there, and I'm going to back up for just a second because, all right, so you're talking about twin brothers, brother against brother, mm -hmm. fighting on opposite sides. And we've, we've kind of heard that theme before. That, that seems to be a familiar theme. But let me ask you this because you, you, uh, mm -hmm. you are an historian. How common was that, that you saw brothers on opposite sides? It was especially common on border states like Maryland and Virginia. Um, you had a lot of differing interests. I mean, even General Lee himself said that he would not raise his sword against his home state, but his heart wanted to go with the Union in a lot of ways. He, he, was, uh, he was an American soldier before he was a Confederate soldier, and he loved his country, but he couldn't, he couldn't raise his sword against his home state. So people's passions and, and loyalties were, were tested and divided, and people's convictions could, could bring them on either side. And it wasn't always about slavery. Um, it, was, it was often about states' rights. Okay, so I'm hearing you say divided, I'm hearing you say taking sides, and, and it's interesting because we're talking about, you know, roughly 150, 160 years ago, so yeah, that's ancient history, right? But maybe not so much, uh, because one of the things mm -hmm. that I find really fascinating about the parallels that you draw in this book is, is um, whether you intended to or not, because I know you began writing this book decades ago, really, um, but mm -hmm. there's an undeniable parallel between the dynamics of the culture then and what we see going on in our culture today. And I just want to hear you talk a little bit about that. Well, there really is. And I'm not the only one who's brought this up. I understand that Dinesh D'Souza and uh, Eric Metaxas have recently talked about this. He did. I just but heard him. Yeah, I just heard an interview. In fact, his movie uh, talks about that. But we're here. But we'll talk about him another time. But yes, let's. I want to hear what you have to say. Well, we, we are a very polarized country. We, um, our issues are kind of similar. There's a lot of social justice uh, warring going on. There's a lot of um, concern over racial and gender and socioeconomic disparities. And uh, 
a lot of the same things were happening 160 years ago in the 1860 election when Lincoln became president. You had uh, people very concerned whether their region or their state or their their way of life would be defended by the government or whether it would be opposed. And modern times you see people very um, concerned about the course of a an election and a president and a the, the president's policies, whether or not they will be represented fairly, whether they will have a voice, and their, the, the political upheaval is unprecedented since the Civil War. So, yeah, interestingly, this. so what you're saying is what's happening now isn't the first time in history. It's not unprecedented that it's that this has never happened where we're seeing people so much at odds with each other, even within families. And interestingly enough, one of the flashpoints uh, today are the way they're toppling Civil War monuments. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I, I know that it's almost incidental, but to me, I, I find it fascinating because there's... His, historical revisionism happening. We're, we're, ha we're having people that want to erase and rewrite and reinterpret historical events. Right. Um, you know, no, I don't think there's anybody who, who would say that they stand for slavery. Um, I don't think there's anybody who would say that we should suppress any people group. But at the same time, toppling General Lee's statue or any famous Confederate leader, I, I don't think that that is going to erase what really happened 160 years ago. It's just going to attempt to rewrite it. And I, and I think there's a danger in not understanding our, our country's history and, and how far we've come in those 160 years. Well, yeah. I think that, um, oh, go ahead. Nope, you have the floor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just, I feel that, yes, racism is still alive. There are parts, north and south, where there is unfair treatment of people groups, whether, whether it be by race or religion or gender or socioeconomic privilege. Um, but I, I, I feel that we're targeting the wrong thing. And I think, you know, for example, if we were so concerned about slavery, Modern-day slavery is in the form of Chinese workers putting together iPads and iPhones and, and uh, working coffee plantations and chocolate plantations. And, and I think if we are so concerned about slavery, we would boycott those things rather than what occurred 160 years ago yeah. that none of us can change. Well, see, because you're stepping on some sacred cows right there, uh, Miss Kathleen O'Maher, mm -hmm. and that's that's the thing. Because on the one hand, you know, I wrote down the word unseemly as you were talking, because you know, one difference I think we can say categorically between that era of the Civil War, the late 19th century, and now is um, we we have we have these sensibilities now that are so easily offended. We don't want anything unseemly, right, for for the sake of our children, for the sake of, you know, and, and it's, I'm not trying mm. to mock it, but I mean, in, in a sense, you know, we, we want to keep things nice, and some of our history is not so nice, as you said. Some of these statues remind mm -hmm. people of a painful time in our past when our leaders made mistakes, mm -hmm. and they weren't in ivory towers. They, you know, they were, they were human beings that were fallible, um, and I think some people out of some some very good intentions want to 
erase that so we don't have to think about that with the hope that maybe we'll be better appeal to our better angels right and there's a whole conversation to be I had love, about yes. that what a perfect quote and segue uh lincoln lincoln's second inaugural address called for us to uh to appeal to the better angels of our nature he didn't want a punitive a retaliatory policy toward the south in reconstruction and when he was assassinated, unfortunately, his his hopeful uh, ideals of rebuilding the country together were, were killed with him. And as, as history has proven, his vice president, Johnson, uh, did exact retribution on the South. Um, and I think just, just for a moment to, to explore what really happened during the Civil War, there is still more casualties from the Civil War, American casualties, than all the following wars combined. So you could add up all the casualties in World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, and they wouldn't even compare to 600 plus thousand men who died, uh, who shed their blood and paid with their blood for the sins of their generation, if you will, um, and, you know, we, we know as believers in Jesus Christ, there's a scripture that says there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. There's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And it speaks of Jesus' shed blood. But don't you think that a generation who lost 600,000 men paid for their sins? I don't think we have to topple these statues to <laughs> exact any kind of payment modern day. I think they paid their dues. Well, that's that's a really interesting point. And, you know, just off the top of my head, because I've never considered exactly what you said before. So it's, it's worth more than just my, uh, you know, shooting from the hip reaction here. But nonetheless, I'll shoot from the hip and say, you know, that I think in wanting to appeal to our better angels, one of the things that we do is we you know we want we want to abolish the bad right so we don't want to we don't want to go back and repeat bad mistakes so we there's mm -hmm. a i think a part of our culture that thinks well if we just erase that and get it out of our collective psyche then we we can evolve into something better but as you said if we forget where we came from i mean you know there's the reason there's that cliche about history repeating itself if we forget then we're bound to repeat if we won't face the ugliness and the awkwardness and you know just the just some of the tragedy of our past if we can't face that then then how are we going to learn from it and i think in a sense that's part of the reaction and part b to that is to to go to your you know your uncomfortable statement of comparing slavery to you know enforced workers in a in an ipad or ipod factory you know we don't want to think about that because like you said i like my ipad i like my my iphone i like i like these things and i you know i want to just plug my ears la 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 i can't hear it because if i if i attune myself yeah. to that reality then i become culpable i become accountable um so i'd rather and, i'd rather kind of dodge too. it i i don't just point fingers because i am speaking to you on an iphone and i had my coffee this morning and I do enjoy those things of modern life, and I don't often think of it. But I think that's where true change begins, is self-examination rather than what, what happens in a generation that we can't even touch tangibly. How, how can we make changes 
unless we start with me now, not them right. then. Right. Um, but what's, what's so redemptive about what, what happened during the Civil War, uh, yes, it was silent, yes, it was, it was revolutionary, but there were real change, and, and there was real change. There, there were people, such as those on the Underground Railroad, that assisted these people to freedom, and there are people in what they, very, very parallel to modern-day sanctuary cities, um, Elmira being one of them. During the Fugitive Slave Law, uh, where bounty hunters could come and try to uh, forcibly remand escaped slaves back to their owners, Elmira was, they didn't call themselves a sanctuary city, but they were, in effect. There was a society... Uh, of, of very protective citizens that would see these bounty hunters coming and they would obfuscate, they would protect the people that they knew had escaped, they would um, drive them out in some instances of the city. And um, so you had these wonderful people who would risk their own reputations, risk their own livelihoods uh, to, to defend the least of these. So there, there is gallantry to be seen if we look for it. Right, and it starts, it starts with me, you know, um, because yeah. in an era where we're so conscious of social justice and, and you know, we, we want to speak out for the oppressed and for those who, whose voices have, who have been suppressed, you know, we think, oh, I want to I speak out for humanity, but... Uh, my neighbor, that person I actually know, ugh, you know, I can't deal with them. You know, so it starts. It starts with me. It starts with me and the actual yeah. people in my life, not just this broad mm -hmm. concept of humanity. And that's what you're talking about, like Jonas Jones, for example. You know, he he John, wasn't just John W. Jones. Yes, yeah. sorry, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the Jonas Brothers. The yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, modern day parallels, almost. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, not a boy band, people. So. Um, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking of him, and I'm thinking of the, you know, the main character in your your book, Marietta Hamilton, and um, you know, it wasn't just, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit in the square and have these philosophical thoughts, and you know, even even writing. I mean, writing is important, right? Um, you know, there were there were very important books that came out at that time that spurred people on. But in the end, it's what we do with the reality of our life and the people in our life and the people that come into our life that that makes change but it starts with me yes yes and um seizing the opportunities that are that are there um one of the things about my characters if i may um so the hero is ethan shark and his brother is Devin, and ethan has set himself out on a on a path that isn't fun it isn't glorious it, it isn't um you know that there's no glory in what he does he he leaves his, his home and his family uh, to basically save a young man who, who his family had purchased as a slave um, and leaving everything behind, his money, his name, his, his clout, uh, he becomes a nobody. And he, he struggles and wrestles with that through the book. Did I do the right thing? Was it worth it? Mm -hmm. um, because he, he's paying he's paying long and hard. You know, he his goal is to win the heart of this young lady and the family doesn't believe he's good enough now, ironically, 
because he has no money and no name, but he's forsaken it all for, for their cause. Mm. And so we deal with, in the book, we deal with different prejudices. We deal with, you know, the obvious racial prejudice. We deal with gender prejudices as Marietta tries to find a voice in a culture that didn't really like women to speak. They wanted women to serve and be quiet and agree with their husbands. And without being shrewish, uh, she does find a way to, to be true to her conscience. And um, I, I, I don't like uh, women heroes in fiction that were anomalous to their time. I like women who, who understood the, the expectations and yet in a gentle way defied them, but, but they were effective in the context of their of their culture yes because i think one of the ways that i think we see revisionism in, in historical fiction is having these outspoken shrewish characters that just simply weren't they that, that it's it, it it didn't happen that way if women were to exert influence it was either because they had a gentleman who gave them um leeway for example, in my other story, which we haven't mentioned, I have I have two books coming out at the same time. Uh, I have a novella in a in a Christmas collection, and and the hero, and the heroine in in that story is a young lady who wants to learn to be a doctor in a time when there were very few women doctors, and her hero is a doctor Rachel Gleason, who was only the fourth woman to become a doctor in this country. Uh, in the 1850s. Um, she may have actually gotten her license in the 1840s. So we see uh, in her case, Dr. Rachel Gleason, she had a husband who was a doctor and he put her through medical school and made a way for her to practice alongside of him. So you see pioneering women in the context of their time. And that's what I hope to do in an authentic way uh, rather than make an anachronism of, of, of you know, women's rights. I, I try to portray it as it really happened. Yeah, and I think and that yeah. it happened. And it's and it's so important. I so appreciate that you do that because yes, I I agree. You know, even watching watching entertainment today, I understand. You know that okay, the you know the importance of of empowering women to to do what we're called to do. Yes, that's an important message. But you're seeing so much even in entertainment that 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 is revising history, and it just it simply wasn't that way. And isn't there a better way to move forward than to try to recreate things that did not happen mm-hmm. um, just for the oh, sake the real of, history yeah. history is so much better if we could just understand it because it requires more courage and more cleverness, I think, to work within the framework that you're given rather than the 20th or 21st century framework that we try to ascribe to them. I think these were really remarkable women who, who worked within the, the expectations they had and uh, defied them in a beautiful and winsome way. <laughs> here, here. Yes, I love that word, winsome. Because, um, yeah, that's, and that's really what changes people is winsomeness. It's not, you know, you know, revolutionaries, yeah, okay, they get things done, but lasting change is done by, but really, you know, you can change behavior, but changed hearts last a lot longer than changed, uh, than just simply yeah. changed behavior. Oh. Well said, well said, yes. 
So, and a hearty, yes. So, on that hearty amen, um, there's so much more we could talk about with this this book. It's just, I mean, it's so beautifully written. Um, I just, I just want to pull out. This is just one random quote. It's actually toward the end, but this is just an example of the way you know your your writing style is just. It, it's there's a beauty to it. Um, that well, okay. I'm just gonna just read this. Just one one little quote, just as an example of the the pictures that you paint. You talk about. Um, uh, it's toward the end of the book. So, uh, Devin's cigarette spun a thin blue ribbon straight up into the heavens. When he exhaled, a fouling cloud invaded the clean scent of pine and earth. And I know that's a random line, and I know it's, you know, the context is like, what? What's going on? So, you'll have to read the book. But I, I love, you know, all you, you weave these descriptions, and there's beauty, but there's also a stark reality to it as well. It's not all just this ethereal, oh, everything is lovely. You, you also capture the rawness and, and some of the ugliness of what was happening, but in a way that is so, you're not telling us about it, you're showing us, which I know that's what a good writer does. But I just, I just want to bring that out because I really appreciate that about you as a writer. Well, thank you. I, I, I have been worried that there are parts that are a little too gritty for the typical Christian romance reader because romances are supposed to be uplifting and inspiring. And I do hope that I leave the reader with that sense. But my heart is to show that there can be beauty and inspiration even in the midst of of dark times and, and hard things happening. That is where I think God especially shines. When, when times are, are difficult and you call upon his name in, in, in your challenge and in your trial, and he really comes through in such a beautiful way. And just to draw a, a comparison to one of my favorite styles of art, Kiyoskuro, if I'm pronouncing that right, it's the study of light within darkness and the effect of, of the drama of when light shines down into darkness. And, and I think if I were to describe my writing style, it probably is very close to that. It's um, showing how the glory of the Lord, in a very real sense, can come into our darkness and illuminate and, and exalt and deliver us. Yes, beauty for ashes, as we know. That's from Isaiah. And, you know, another another scripture that came to mind was from Ephesians. I think it's um, in chapter 5 about making the most of every opportunity because the days uh, are, are evil, right? And you were talking about your, yeah. you know, your characters and that's, you know, that's what they're doing. They're trying to make the most of these opportunities that come before them. And then they question, did I do the right thing? Because, you know, I'm in this dark place and, you know, just being in the midst of the vagueness or the just the uncertainty of all right i can't see the outcome of this all i know is that i did what i thought was the right thing but the heavens mm -hmm. haven't alighted upon me yet and i'm bringing this up now because your characters have dealt with that but i promised at the beginning of this interview i wanted to, to talk as much about your story in writing this book as the book itself mm -hmm. because i think it's just as compelling and i you know okay so you know in five minutes or less can you explain the last three decades to me but um uh, i think i just want to hear a little bit if it's possible for you to nutshell just this whole idea of you yourself as an author in creating this story and doing seizing those yes. opportunities um, well thank you i you know it's hard to talk about oneself but i can give glory to god because Years ago, 
I was at the head of my class in high school, and I really thought I was on the fast track to Ivy League, and I felt that, you know, I was looking not just at a master's, but a doctorate somehow, and I really felt that that was my destiny. And then I had an unplanned pregnancy, and it was a no-brainer for me. I felt that life is so much more important than self-actualization. And I'm not a hero here because perhaps if I had adopted my son out to someone of more means, perhaps maybe he would have had a, an easier life. But I felt compelled to this child and I poured into my son, uh, you know, in poverty. We, we were not wealthy and I had a lot of help from my mo our mother and from my family they all sewed into my son, and it wasn't easy. It, it, you know, I know doing the right thing, you do question yourself. Well, you know, did I do him a favor by giving him life? Uh, you know, the, the, the opposite of pro-life is a belief that death is better mm. than struggle in life. And that's a matter of faith, and no one can tell you that life is better until you believe that life can be better and for me that revolves around Jesus Christ because if I have faith in him I believe in a better tomorrow I love that old song because he lives I can face tomorrow and so we lived one day at a time and I never gave up on the writing I always felt that that was something that I was called to and I continued over the years to grow in my craft, to meet wonderful people like Debbie Lynn Costello, Carrie Sansett Pagels, uh, even Kim Sawyer, who was good enough to um, offer to mentor me at a conference. Um, just wonderful people who shared their skills and um, encouragement and prayer over the years. And I won, you know, a Genesis Award, which is American Christian Fiction Writers, uh, you know, ultimate prize for pre-published authors. It's an encouragement milestone along the way with a lot of competition and the glory is God's. And so that was some years ago and I continued on. I had an agent. Uh, we didn't sell and I feel, you know, like I referred to earlier, it may have been a little too gritty for the market. So I, I continued to learn and just this past year, I was uh, asked to participate in a novella collection, The Victorian Christmas Brides with Barber Book, and it was my first official publishing contract with a bona fide traditional publisher. And it gave me the courage to release this story of my heart. There's always been hope. There's always been this sense of God is with us and who can be against us. And by the way, my son is now an assistant teacher. He teaches other kids how to do digital media arts. He, he's a responsible, uh, wonderful young man that adds value to our community. And, and what could be more of a testimony than that? That every life has purpose. And God has uh, plans that we know not of, that we couldn't even imagine, you know, when we're staring down an uncertain future. So I just I just want to give that to someone out there who's struggling. Do I choose the hope of life? Choose faith, my friend, because God will not disappoint. 
Yeah, yeah, that's so good. You know, and it, it's just amazing because, you know, I, I know your story. And yet, you know, hearing you say it, it's, it's just like, that's right. You know, you get lost in the day to day and you don't always see the bigger picture. And you just reminded me of your bigger picture. And, and the fact that, you know, as you said, you know, your son, yeah, he's a-okay. He's, you know, I got lots of nieces and nephews. I got no favorites, so I won't call him my favorite, but he was, he was one of the first. So I, I broke my auntie skills in on him and he's a good guy. Um, but, but bigger than that is, um, and, and he's a pretty tall guy too, but even, even bigger than his tallness is, the, is the, you know, your story, it's, it's about perseverance and it's about, um, even when you felt weak or, you know, maybe even faithless, we talked about that at the beginning, maybe pre-interview that, you know, when we're faithless, God is faithful because he can't disown himself and your life is yeah. definitely, and it, you know, you're still in it and there's still a lot more of it, but your life has definitely been a testimony of that. It's been a testimony of making the most of every opportunity and trusting him. And, you know, you talked about not getting published a few years ago because you thought, well, maybe it was too gritty and maybe audiences weren't ready, but I'm just going to tell you, uh, Kathleen Elmaher, who I like to call Kathy, um, that I really think that this book is for such a time as this because I think maybe audiences are ready for it now because we've been through some stuff, especially these past, you know, this mm. past decade. And I think even the church is starting to realize, you know, we need to get real, not to celebrate the grit, but to but to say, all right, you know, this is there is some stuff we, we can't ignore so that we can get to the beauty. Um, and, and I think that's mm. important and it's, it's a hard line to walk sometimes as Christians because we certainly don't want to embrace darkness, but as you said, the light shines in the darkness and that's, that's the contrast. We can't pretend there's no darkness because if we do that, we're shutting out the light. Thank you. And I, I just want to say that underneath it all, I really am a Pollyanna. I believe in hope for everyone. I don't believe there's anyone we have to leave behind, no matter how awful their situation or story looks. God is big enough. He's better than the Marines or whoever that say, leave no man behind. God doesn't give up on any of us. And that's how I like to write. I like to tell the stories of people who look beyond hope and and show how God can bring hope. Yes, and... I think that this is just a beautiful segue to to just encourage people what you've been doing all along. Somebody needs to hear this. Somebody, whether they're whatever they're facing, they need to hear this because everyone's going through something or they're about to go through something. And this idea that we need to embrace hope—it's not just Pollyanna. This is this is as true as the air that we breathe. It's as true as gravity that there is hope. No matter what you're going through, no matter what, no matter what has been delayed in your life, because you know that's another big yeah. theme of delayed dreams and delayed heart desires, or just even delayed prolonged hardships. There's still hope, and that's that's a theme woven throughout your stories. And it's and the reason it's woven throughout your stories is because it's been woven throughout your life. And I'm a firsthand witness of that, so I can say that with authority. So I, I just know that this story is going to greatly encourage anyone who's smart enough to connect with this book. So let's talk about that. How can people get this book? The Abolitionist's Daughter is published through Kindle Direct Publishing, so it's only available right now on Amazon uh, as an ebook. There are some other outlets that will be picking it up 
in print, but for now I would just refer you to Amazon. So again, my, my author name is Kathleen L. Maher. There is another Kathleen Maher out there that is not me. She yes, but you have the L. Secular. <laughs> yes. Yes, so just stick with the L. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's your assignment. Yes. And uh, the Victorian Christmas Bride Collection is releasing September 1st. Um, it's available for pre-order, and that's available wherever books are sold uh, to pre-order. Okay, so you heard it. So look her up on Amazon. Um, in fact, both books are available on Amazon. So if you look up Kathleen L. Maher, you're going to find both books. Um, can't recommend them enough. I know we didn't talk a lot about the novella. It's very beautiful. I actually I got to see a hard copy of it, and um, it's it's a lovely book, and it's filled with inspiring stories. So, yes, it's, um, it's a beautiful volume. Uh, Barbara Books spared no expense, literally, in, in bringing uh, just a gorgeous Christmas collection nine different novellas i'm only one of nine but they're all beautiful inspiring christmas romances set in the victorian era so yeah i'm just i'm just so blessed it's like having uh book baby twins <laughs> so it's an exciting time it's a very exciting time and it's it's about time that's what i would say so i'm i'm truly truly excited for you i'm truly excited to be a part in helping to get the word out about this book because it's not just about bragging on my sister which hey i'm i'm a-okay with doing but it's really about encouraging as many people as possible and i know that's your heart i know that's the heart behind these stories so whether hey whether you're a fan of you know whether you're a civil war historian a fan of historical fiction of romance or you like christmas i mean we got something here for everybody um so i really just want to encourage you to check that out in fact um we're, i'm gonna run i'm doing this myself i'm not even gonna put it on the spot um so if you share this podcast uh we'll enter you and you got to let me know that you're sharing it um but we'll enter you uh into a contest i'll be giving away um a copy of your choice of one one book or the other so uh, I'll give you details about that when we post this podcast um, so uh, what you need to do though is subscribe to the Isle of Misfits and I'll I'll tell you about that in just a moment but Kathy thank you so much for joining us today um, really it, I've done so many interviews and you know as we were, we were joking like I, I probably have been more nervous about this one than anyone that I've done so you even beat John Eldridge so congratulations <laughs> I praise indeed. Thank you, Nancy. This has been uh, such a delight, and I, I'm as nervous as if you were John Eldridge too. <laughs> Thank you. Well, always end on a high note, they say, and being compared to John Eldridge by your award-winning little sister seems like a good place to land. So, there you have it. I couldn't be prouder, and I say this not just as a gushing sibling. But as a harsh critic, which I am, you will love Kathleen's books, both The Abolitionist Daughter as well as the Victorian Christmas Brides Collection. So, once again, you can find them by looking up Kathleen L. Maher, that's M-A-H-E-R, and don't forget the L, on Amazon.com. And, as promised, I'm going to give away a copy of each to a few of you lucky misfits out there. All you got to do is subscribe to the isleofmisfits.com that's I-S-L-E of misfits.com and share this podcast. I'll pick out a winner by September 15th. So get cracking. And while you're cracking, remember to own your awkward. Love your fellow misfit. 
and look for the shining light of beauty and truth in whatever darkness you may find yourself in, because it's there. <laughs>